Morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Today's Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week, originating from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where I'm going to be involved in a day-long conference on religious liberty with uh, such luminaries as you heard last hour, Archbishop Charles Chaput, Robbie George, wonderful people devoted to the idea of religious liberty. And religious liberty plays a large role, though hidden somewhat, in Darkness at Noon. In this Hillsdale Dialogue this week, I continue our third and final conversation with Dr. Larry Arnn, the president of Hillsdale College, about Arthur Kessler's novel, novel, Darkness at Noon. Dr. Arnn, of course, the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. Hillsdale with two L's, hillsdale.edu. Also, all of these dialogues, including the previous two on Darkness at Noon and all of the Hillsdale dialogues back four years, are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com, H-U-G-H-F-O-R, hillsdale.com. Dr. Arne, a good Friday to you. How are you, my friend? I'm very well. I got up early this morning to read Arthur Kersler, and that's, <laughs> that's uh, grim and exalting both. You, you, you read the end of it, probably, as I did. Coming back, I, I, Hillsdale does not get involved in politics, but you and I talk politics a little bit. I was driving back from the vice presidential debate in Longwood, Virginia, and finished the book on late on Tuesday night. It was so grim. The ending of it is so grim. But since I just brought up the vice presidential debate, did you watch your friend Mike Pence? Uh, I watched a lot of it and read about it and read most of what they said the next morning. Yeah, it was interesting. He's a very... Uh, stable, um, reasoning, sober guy, and uh, he's a good guy. I know him very well and like him. But, uh, yeah, so I thought it was an interesting contrast in the debate. It was. I, I've known Mike Pence a long time, not as long as you and not as well as you, but I, I kind of expected that. Uh, to a certain extent, I, he, I, he gave me exactly what I expected from Mike Pence. And what used to be sort of the norm, and, and there are even echoes of the 19th century in his delivery about he doesn't like interrupting or being interrupted because the debates that you and I covered, the Lincoln Douglas debates, it was unheard of. Well, it was uh, it was seldom and apologized for when it happened. It did happen sometimes, and uh, and there's usually oh, you're right. Just Judge Douglas would interject something from the corner, wouldn't he? Yeah, that's right. And then people from the audience too. But both candidates uh, cautioned their supporters not to do that. And they didn't do it very much themselves. Lincoln hardly did it at all, uh, and Douglas a little more. And they were, you know, they were they they were they were mean as all heck to each other, but they kept up the courtesies. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like this hour. Let's go to uh, Darkness at Noon. What a wonderful book! I put it down. I've made so many notes, but I you know I try and reduce. A book to its its uh, essence, and there's a line by Gletkin. And would you, for the benefit of people, uh, explain, give us the premise of the characters again who've just walked in. You know, the, the Yinzers from Pittsburgh who just walked in and can't remember last week. What, what are we talking about here, Gletkin? Well, uh, this is a story about the Moscow show trials, and it seeks to explain a, a puzzle, which is why did Stalin's colleagues, who had been his equals at the moment of the revolution, uh, later confess in public at length to crimes they did not commit, knowing that they would be shot in a dungeon uh, without ceremony after they had made the confessions. And it, it was suspected or thought at the time that they had been tortured. In fact, they were not. Uh, they were interrogated very sharply. But what Arthur Kessler or Kessler thinks is that some logic 
in their own lives and convictions led them to say these things. Uh, and they had tremendous reasons not to say them, not just that they knew they were going to be shot without ceremony, not just that they had not committed the crimes to which they confessed, but also that they had to resent Stalin, who had you know, not only risen above them all, but killed most of them. And this is about that Rubishov is a stand-in for the greatest of these people, and the last of these people, who testified at the show trials, a man named Bukharin. And, uh, <coughs> and so why did they do this? And the characters are really uh, chiefly three. Uh, there are three main characters, and then there are some subordinate characters I'll list. That, well, the three main I'll tell you about, and the others I'll list. Um, the three main are Rubishov, this man who stands in for Bukharin. His first interrogator is a man named Ivanov, who's a, another old maker of the revolution. And he interrogates uh, Rubishov for the first half of the book or so, and you find out that he's trying to save his life. And then Ivanov is replaced. Uh, also, Ivanov is arrested and during the course of the book, shot. Uh, on the testimony of Gletkin, a young uh, next-generation revolutionary who's referred to consistently by uh, Rubishov as a Neanderthal. And uh, yeah. Rubishov thinks that he made, he and Ivanov and their old colleagues, made this young man. And the second uh, interrogation is relentless and sharp. Uh, Rubishov is kept up all night, uh, a bright light shining in his eyes, and uh, that and uh, Gletkin and Gletkin gets him to confess to all these things—a written confession, all uh, confession, all but one. And uh, and then uh, he he breaks him down. And Gletkin's account of breaking him down uh, in conversation with Ivanov, whom he betrayed and and replaced and had executed, is that it's not logic. In other words, it's not a rational faculty of the human mind. It's constitution. You just wear them down. But in my reading yeah. of the book, uh, that, that's not what happens, that it's a combination of wearing him down. And, but more than that, it is the, uh, it is the logic of, of Rubishoff's life. And a great way to read the book is to ask yourself the question all the way through, because I think this is what the book is about, why did Rubishoff confess? And you will find, if you examine that question, two alternative views of human nature that are at war with each other in Rubishoff's soul. Now, what you just did was, was beautiful. I've gotten some critiques <clears throat> from my friends that say, you allow people not to read the books. And I say, no, that's not true. Uh, when, we give a, when we give a summary, and there are some great summarizers out there, Novel Conversations, for example, is a podcast out of Lakewood, Ohio, that will summarize a novel just to give you the characters. It's easier to remember, and it's better for people to understand the key points. Then they ought to go and read if they have not read, or they ought to continue reading. Having had that summary then allows me to say, Gletkin is merciless. There is no mercy in him. He is a Neanderthal. Uh, but he says something that I wrote in context of 2016 and other elections, uh, Larry Arn. The leader of the revolution, he's talking about number one, Stalin. The leader of the revolution understood that all depended on one thing, to be the better stayer, S-T-A-Y-E-R, to be the better stayer. And I thought to myself, that really does go to the heart of dictatorship, doesn't it? You just have to stick around. 
the uh, the uh, driving question in the Soviet Union that led to the purges of the party elite and you know much of the officer corps of the of the Red Army was should they do what they went to Russia to do, which was begin a world revolution there and go everywhere. Trotsky was the great advocate of that. And they were, uh, Rubishov describes them all as militant philosophers. And, they, and their, their principles didn't allow for socialism in one country. It was to be a world revolution. And Stalin had a different idea. And his idea was, the way Glitkin puts the idea is, um, there's a world reaction against us. We've been wrong about that. We thought once we hoisted our banner somewhere, everybody would rally to us. No, they're turning against us. And so we have to survive that. And that's handy for Stalin because the means of survival are to entrench themselves in the Soviet Union or Russia and then to appoint one guy, the be-all and end-all. And so that's why Stalin killed all his colleagues, the chief reason why. And, and, uh, and, this, and Gletkin is, is the spokesperson for number one. He, he, and, and see, he's... Un, he understands these arguments. He says, no, no, uh, I understand why you wanted to go all over the world and why you thought things would be different than they are, but he, he, he understands that in an academic way. Rubishov had lived that. He had fought for that. He had done rank injustices for that, and he had been imprisoned and tortured for that. And so it was a lot easier for Gletkin to stand apart from all that and judge between the two claims. And he does make a judgment. We'll come back to that judgment. It It's fascinating on so many levels. It's also beautifully written. I say Arthur Kessler. Uh, Dr. Arn has the correct but frequently forgotten correct pronunciation. Doesn't matter. Darkness at noon. Go download it. We'll be right back. We're wrapping up our three weeks on it. Then we'll move on to Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Don't go anywhere, Americans. Thank you, Hewitt Show. Two minutes after the hour, America from Westminster Theological Seminary today in Philadelphia. I'm broadcasting the Hillsdale Dialogue. Very aware of what's going on in Florida. Very aware, as I've been telling you, about the mercy that's needed for Haiti. The uh, food for the poor button is up at HughHewitt.com. Mercy is not present in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Mercy is a Christian virtue. It's a virtue of other world religions as well, and there isn't any of it at all in Darkness at Noon. The work of Arthur Kessler that Dr. Laron, president of Hillsdale College, and I are discussing in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu. Hugh4hillsdale.com collects, my gosh, it's probably 150 of these hours of conversations. Binge listen. A moment, Dr. Arn, on, on the beauty of the detail in here. Uh, Gletkin is interrogating mercilessly, as I said. There is no mercy here, Rubishov. And he says, finally, after he gets an answer he wants, he get, you know, he's in this glaring light. They use hard messes, uh, methods. Uh, Gletkin says, does the light disturb you? Asked Gletkin suddenly. Rubishov smiled. Gletkin paid cash. That was the mentality of the Neanderthaler. And yet when the blinding light of the lamp became a degree milder, Rubishov felt relief and even something kindred to gratefulness. I love that line, Gletkin paid cash, Larry Arn. <laughs> he was, uh, <laughs> Gletkin is an incredibly stiff person, and his cuffs always make a crinkle or a noise, and everything is exactly correct. 
And unlike in the typical interrogation, he, uh, uh, Rubishov is not questioned by teams of people. He's just one person. And that meant that Gletkin stayed up as long as Rubishov stayed up. Yep. And that, that yep. says Rubishov, deprived him of the, uh, of the martyr's reward, victimhood, because he was suffering too, was Gletkin, and he could just suffer better. And so he, he comes to regard Gletkin as something like a god, and that is alluded to several times in the, in the, uh, in the, in the narrative. And, he, uh, and, Gletkin is, uh, uh, and Gletkin is the god of history, of the revolution. He is the revolution incarnate, and he represents some undeniable necessity to Rubishov. It was, uh, there's an amazing uh, conversation about when Rubishov was abroad and, and met with uh, uh, Herr von Z, a, a, a German, obviously, of the old regime. Glutkin understood nothing of guinea pigs. He had never drunk coffee with Herren von Zies. It occurred to Rubishev how haltingly Glutkin had read, how often with the wrong intonation. He was of proletarian origin and had learnt to read and write when already grown up. He would never understand that a conversation beginning with guinea pigs could end God knows where. He would also, though, Glutkin would teach Rubishev what it meant to get a watch when you were nine. It's a fascinating dialectic between these two. Yeah, Glitkin is not like Rubishoff. He's not learned. He's not poetic. He's not... Uh, there's nothing for him. Uh, he, uh, Rubishoff makes the point in his mind that he and Ivanov are different from, from Glitkin because they know something outside the revolution. And so they have a sense of humor about it, which Glitkin always calls cynicism. Uh, Gletkin, on the other hand, he's a very emotional man, and he's very proud, and he has something at stake in this interrogation because it was always open to Rubishov simply to refuse to say anything, and they would have taken him down in the in the dungeon and shot him, which they eventually did after the trial. But Gletkin was supposed to produce the trial and and the confession, and if he did that, he would rise in the party, and if he didn't, he'd probably be shot himself. So they're they're having a duel, who gets killed, and they both have, well at least Rubishov understands that. Now about the watch, that's a very important thing because what Glitkin knows is he grew up in a little village. He says, and he didn't get a watch till he was nine years old. No, he didn't get a, yeah he didn't get a watch till he was in his teens, and right. nobody in the village had a watch, and so when they were trying to run a factory, people wouldn't come on time. And if they got tired, they'd just go down, lie down, and go to sleep. And he says, uh, and, and see, I don't think this is at all the cause of it. I think the revolution is wrong about this. But Glickin says uh, a, a group of people um, visited from Manchester, near where an industrial center in the north of England, not far from where my wife grew up. And, uh, and they had 200 years to learn the industrial ways. We had to do it now, and so we had to shoot them. In 10 years. And that got them to learn. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. Darkness at Noon is on the table on the Hilltale Dialogue. Stay with us. Thirty-three minutes after the hour, America from Westminster Theological Seminary. Today we will spend all day talking about religious liberty, of which there was none in the Stalin Soviet Union. There is some in Putin's Russia today. There was none in Stalin's Soviet Union. 
Our darkness at noon on the table between Dr. Larry Arn and I as we have our Hilltale Dialogue this week, and we are talking about the crescendo of the book, the interrogation of, of Rubashov by Gletkin, and then the trial and the account of the trial as it's read by a daughter to her father who's in the way of an apartment. I want to get to that, but first, a word more on Gletkin. Massive and expressionless, he sat there, Dr. Arn, the brutal embodiment of the state which owed its very existence to the Rubashovs and the Ivanovs, flesh of their flesh, grown independent and become insensible. Uh, he also talks about the chimps in the trees laughing at the Neanderthals, not realizing that the Neanderthals would last and make them their pets. Yeah, so that's right. And that means that uh, the charm and hope of the revolution has been re- replaced by single focus and by, um, and by what? By uh, entrenchment, right? They're not, they're not ambitious to do anything for a long time indefinitely except control everything. That's all they're doing. And they know that the people are suffering, and they think that's good. In that sense, this book is just like 1984. And, and uh, it, it, uh, I want to say a quick word about methodology, and then I want to say what I think is the final question and how it's answered. Uh, first of all, the people who say we don't make it necessary to read the book, well, there's lots and lots of books that people should read. If you read a lot, then you should read things that are just fun to read, and you don't think about them much after you read them. But if a book is worthy of having a dialogue or a better thing yet, a seminar about, then what you want to do is take it apart and try to see what it means. <laughs> and that means in class, you don't really spend a lot of time going over the plot. Uh, people are expected to have read the book, and it's way better if our listeners read the book. But these key passages, right, and we, we do in this class that I'm teaching right now, we do read passages from the book a lot, and not just I. Uh, students have a point to make, they'll take the passage, we put it up on a screen sometimes, and we, and we read it aloud, and we think what it means. But of course, this book, in my argument, is very carefully written, and that means that things that recur in it, I'm going to mention three terms now. There's the term silent partner, and there's the term grammatical fiction, and there's the term I, the first person singular pronoun, and there's the term infinite. And in this book, those four terms are are synonyms. And Rubishoff's war is between the I, the human being, the person who is connected to the divine and has a sense of eternity. That is the thing that Rubishoff has sent his, spent his life crushing. And he's almost crushed it out in himself, but he can't quite. And there are two reasons for it. One is there, there are these four people. There's Arlova, his lover, and there's Richard, a revolutionary we talked about last time, and there's little Lowy, another one, and then in the prison there's uh, Bagrov. And those are all people that, that Rubishov, in one sense or another, betrays and causes their death, and it gets interpreted as to save his own skin. The truth is, he could do nothing for them, really. That would be his justification, and he could go on. But it's his feelings about them about their worthiness and about their innocence and how they were crushed. In other words, his sense of justice, an eternal concept, had, had made him a counter-revolutionary. And, and so he, he wants to talk to that part of himself. He wants to enjoy that part of himself. It's the whole reason he wants to live in the prison. But, of course, he's been killing that in others. 
And yep. so that contradiction, he thinks, and in fact, Gledkin appeals to him explicitly about this, and he tells him that there's an eternal glory available for Rubishov that he can have, but there's only one way to have it, he says. You have to go and make yourself into a scapegoat. And this is directly compared to Jesus. Yep. Uh, and and he, he says, you have to be thought vile. You have to sacrifice yourself. You have to paint yourself pitch black, which was a, a rule of prudence of Rubishoff earlier in his career. Anything that's gold has got to shine brightly, and anything that's black has got to be pitch black, and there can't be anything in between because the masses can only be educated that way. And then Gledkin says, if you do that, then years later we will recover all of this testimony and everything you've said for yourself, and in that happier later day you can be immortalized, right? In other words, he's offering a kind of heaven, an earthly heaven. But Rub- and, and Rubishoff accepts that, and the complex of things that makes him do it are, above all, he has done this to others, and now he has to pay. In other words, there, there are two things going on. One, the entrenched, searing habit of destroying every good thing that he has been part of, on the one hand, and on the other, the I, the infinite. He keeps saying that, that the pronoun I is a grammatical fiction. There is no such thing, right? Those things are talking to him and saying, you did this to Arlova. There's a really great, we, we don't, uh, Bagroff never gets to speak in the thing, and he and in the, in the book, Bagroff is the hero of the battleship Potemkin, about which Stalin had a movie made in the 20s. A great Russian hero. And, and, uh, and uh, Rubishov only hears him go down the hall to his execution and hears him whimper and hears the, the heavy steps. And, and, and that is very effective, affecting to him. He's never seen an execution although he's called many. And the passage about this is riveting, and it, and it recalls Aristotle's account of how we, have, we know moral things. And he says we see them through the sense perception. You can see them, right? You can smell them. You can hear them. You can touch them. And so now for the first time, he sees what an execution is like, like and he immediately puts Arlova, his lover, and little Loe and Richard in the same spot, and he thinks for himself for the first time fully what he has done. And, and so, he has a conscience. He has a conscience, conscience, right? And conscience is what yep. you're not to have. Uh, there's an ethics described between Glentkin, especially, between Ivanov and Rubishov, but especially between Glentkin and Rubishov. And the, and, and the ethics is entirely consequential. That means if it works out right, it is right. And if it doesn't work out right, even if in good faith, even with a great argument, even if most of the time your argument would work out right, not only are you wrong, but you have to be shot for being wrong. You have to be shot. You have to be erased. <laughs> and, and, you have uh, to confess so that you're wrong. That ethics destroys yeah. humanity. And, of course, it, it does it in the name of a perfect control of nature. And that isn't There's a new also- idea. Herodotus describes the Persians as believing that uh, no one will ever lie and that what's Ill- illegal to do is illegal 
to think. So you have in Xerxes a man who thinks he can control everything, right? And this is just a modern scientific and therefore much more thoroughgoing and much more and much larger example of the same impulse. Yeah, it, it, it's actually chilling. It's also prophetic. You're teaching this in the context of a seminar on totalitarianism and the inevitability of what the state must become against the backdrop of evolutionary theory. I mean, that is what uh, Kessler is arguing, is that the the People's Republic has to go this way. It has to end up here with Gletkin in charge because Gletkin is superior to the intellectuals who went first. There is, Dr. Arn, at the end of this, and I want to make sure we, we get to this, this odd drop-in, the Porter Wasillage. Am I pronouncing that? Is that how you would pronounce it, the Porter Wasillage? Yeah, that's right. Okay. The Porter Wasillage lay on his back and thought of the time when Rubashev had been conducted in triumph through the meetings after his rescue from the foreigners and how he had stood leaning on his crutches up on the platform under the red flags and decorations and smiling had rubbed his glasses on his sleeve while the cheering and shouting never ceased and the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium and they called together the whole band and they clothed him with purple and they smote him on his head with a reed and they did not spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And it, then his daughter is reading him the show trial and he's, he's clearly in despair. He's also quite clearly a Christian. He quit keeps quoting scripture and he realizes his daughter is going to kill him under yeah. this new regime. Isn't this chilling? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and he is old and alone and broken down by age and by the revolution and the wars he's fought. And he is living in deadly fear of his daughter who makes him sign and, and she makes him, and just that way they make you do things, right? She's about to get married, and she can't get married until they both have a place to live, and there's a long wait list for a place to live. But if her father were to die, that would fix it. And so she gives him, because once Rubishoff is, is killed, and that's what they did after these show trials, then they have petitions in all the workplaces saying, execute this person, this mad, these mad dogs. They call them mad dogs all the time. Execute this person. And she brings it to him to sign. And that's his friend, Rubishov, whom he loves and with whom he fought. And, you know, several times Rubishov is described in the novel as being a man of very great parts, very courageous, very wise, very... Uh, uh, Incredible talented. leader. Yeah, that's right. They warrior. Loved him, right? And this man loved Rubishov, right? And now he sees him there. And his daughter doesn't say, you have to sign this or you'll be killed. All she says is, uh, they, they, back at the workplace, the, the party officials in the workplace, they wondered if you would sign it. <laughs> and so he knows what that and, is. And he does. We'll be, we'll be right back to, to wrap this up. It's such a, uh, a poignant moment. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Dr. Arn for more. In the meantime, head over to HughHewitt.com. Got some things for you over there that you do not want to miss, including your opportunity to support Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Hugh4ISI.com. There is a... A great box that, that says support ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, of which Dr. Arn is a graduate. Terrific for you, Q4ISI.com, tax-deductible contribution. Don't forget, Sierra Pacific can refinance your house right now at loan rates, which are extraordinary. Wherever you are in the United States, from Hawaii to New York, from Florida to Alaska, if you're in Kansas, you're in Colorado, you're in Texas, the Sierra Pacific mortgage experts, because it's a lender, it's a bank, can do soup to nuts. And my friends Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian at 888 1172 888 1172 
are the very best. I tell you about this every day because I don't want some of you to miss this window of opportunity. And maybe I have new listeners in new markets as you drive to work in Michigan. My latest market ad, 888 whether you've just joined us in Alabama, triple eight triple eight eleven seventy two, they will take care of you. They're my mortgage bankers. I've known Andrew for twenty years. He's my men's small group. You can trust them. They will get it done. If it is possible to get done, they will get it done at the very, very best rates available in America. And these rates are not coming back in your lifetime. Help your kids buy a house if necessary. Get your own house refinance right now. Triple eight triple eight eleven seventy two, or go look for Andrew's smiling face at hughhewitt.com. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Next week, we're on to Brave New World, the 1932 novel of Aldous Huxley, uh, as opposed to Darkness at Noon. Why did you teach them in this order, Dr. Arne, to go from uh, 1984 to Darkness at Noon to Brave New World? Why in reverse order? Um, two, two reasons. One is to get the ugliest stuff out of the way so we don't go to go home for Christmas in, in despair. Uh, oh, very good. And the second one is... Uh, the first book is about the party is seen from underneath it, and this and Darkness at Noon is about the party seen from the top. And uh-huh. uh, you you find out that the view is the same, but uh, uh, the, the the it's it's a the, together. By the way, they make a great commentary on tyranny, because one of the great lessons from the classics about tyranny is it doesn't make tyrants happy either, and and uh, everybody. Uh, is afraid, right? Uh, O'Brien, in 1984, is not afraid because he has so mortified his soul that he has destroyed this eye that Rubishoff is unable to destroy. He's early, and remember, uh, uh, O'Brien would be a descendant of Gletkin, right? Yep, That's what, better. That's where they're going, right? But, Stronger and better. But uh, Gletkin himself has profound reasons to fear, and uh, and remember what it is like. Uh, Glicken was tortured, having been gravely wounded, and has a big scar on his head because some object was jutting out of his head for a while. And he was tortured under those circumstances, and he didn't break. And he's congratulated for that by Ivanov, another very brave soldier who's lost a leg. And he says, "I only fainted. I would have broken if they if I'd stayed awake." So he he mortifies himself as a discipline, as the way you are to live. And that's what Rubishoff has been doing to himself just less thoroughly than Gleitkin. The last conversation in the book is with the admirable 402, the man in cell 402, a monarchist and a military man who encourages uh, Rubishoff before he's executed. You won't show the white feather. We know you're the devil of a fellow. Don't take it ill. Technical suggestion of a soldier. Empty your bladder. It's always better in such cases. And he bemoans the fact he has 18 years more of imprisonment, and he envies you. But Rubishov says, you can read and study. It's an interesting last conversation. Uh, it, and the noblest guy in the book is 402. That's right. And, and, uh, and when, he, when he says you're the devil of a fellow, at the climax of Rubishov's uh, interrogation by Gletkin, Rubishoff says, I see, you want me to play the devil. And so then the devil, the word devil comes up again later, and this time as an, appla- an approbation, right? 
you're the devil of a fellow. Yeah. And so he does become both what Gletkin wants and what uh, Her- uh, 402, not Hairlip, 402 wants. And, and he, at the end, you know, you see, at the very end, what he does is he, he, he feels his death as a joining with the infinite. And, yeah. and you can read that more than one way, but uh, what I think it means is, in the end, uh, Arthur Kessler believed that you cannot destroy the human being, and uh, that, that the human being in touch with the eternal, if nowhere else, at least at the moment of his death, will be in touch with that. I have to go back and reread that because I was so depressed after reading 402. But I, I have to say, you could spend a semester on this book. This is uh, I've been doing the Hillsdale Dialogues with you for four years, mostly about text I've read one time or another. I've never read Darkness at Noon. This is a magnificent book. Isn't it, though? And it, 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 yeah. people shouldn't think it's, it's depressing. I, I find the closing chapters thrilling, right? It's a great drama coming to a climax. And everything is explained, and and in my to my eye, very artfully. That is to say, it is a wonderful picture of the way things work in nature. You can try, if you want to, to destroy all humanity, but in the end, you couldn't do that except by killing them all, including yourself. I I, I just think your students must be enjoying this, and I think this is why people should go to Hillsdale. To read books like this in that way, I really do. I just, I just think it's the complete argument for recovering literature. And how many college? What percentage of college students do you think will read Darkness at Noon, Larry Arn? Well, not not very high. Most people never heard of the book. Um, but I'd also add that to read this book well, you have to read a lot of other books, and you know, yes. they read those too. And they're young, and and. It is amazing how much they learn, but when it works, and it mostly does, they're going to go on learning for the rest of their lives, and they're going to live and they're going to keep looking because of it. And they're going to keep looking for more books like this. Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, thank you. America, I'm on my way to St. Louis on Sunday for the debate. Don't miss that, but go to HughForHillsdale.com. Listen to the first two hours, if you have not already, of the uh, uh, discussion with Dr. Arn about this. And please don't forget our friends in Haiti. Food for the poor. The button is up at HughHewitt.com all weekend long. Think about it and pray about them. Our eyes are with you, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina. Our prayers are with you as well. We'll check in with you on Monday after the next debate on the next Hugh Hewitt show. Show.